Welcome to episode 319 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. So every once in a while, as we're going through this grand series, which is really just talking about the gospel and Jesus Christ and the good news, I think there there is a moment where sometimes in the calendar, the conversation gets aligned to something that's happening in real time or something that could be tangential to what we're talking about. And I actually see that occurring with this topic today. So we're going to really be asking the question, what is the mission of the church and its office in relation to the world? Which may seem like a pedestrian question, may seem like you have a Sunday school answer in your mind. And I would say, hold on to that, loved ones, because we're going to get into all this stuff. But I think uh, in equal terms is, what does this have to do with the fact that we're about to enter into the Christmas season? Yes. And I think there's a little bit that we're going to talk about today that also connects with this idea. So if you're looking for a fancy word to hold on to as we go into this conversation about church and culture, it's transformationalism. And that's what we'll be getting to in just a moment. But of course, we got business to do. We have an agenda. This is Robert's Rules of Orders. And so (laughs) I see the floor to you, good sir, as we go into affirmations and denials. And I would say, choose what you will. Okay. Well, I'll I'll start with denials this week, just because last week I plowed over your denial. And so I want to make sure you actually get your your full time on the floor today. Um, I'm just denying illness. So I I mean, you know this, but our our little family here of me, my wife and and our son, August, we've been wrestling with uh, seasonal cold viruses now for almost a month. So the the baby got a cold. Uh, we don't know where. He's not in daycare. He doesn't go to school, but he, he got a cold and then gave it to us. Um, and now we've just got that lingering kind of like congestion. My wife has settled into a nice sort of sinus infection, which is always great. Um, so, yeah, it's just what a time to be alive in like the negative sense that like we we have to deal with illness and we have to deal with frailty and all of the hard work we did trying to teach the baby how to sleep. And now because, you know, he can't breathe at night because through his nose, he's losing all that. So, yeah, I don't know that there's much more to say about it, except what is this like adventures in Genesis three, like thorns and thistles stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's, it is what it is. I mean, I don't want to complain too much. Things could be so much worse. You know, we're, we're all relatively healthy and safe, but it's, it's annoying. It's, it's annoying. You can hear it in my voice. It's annoying. So Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, if I was if I was good at this podcasting thing, I'd take that out and post, but no, that's I'll great. just leave it. People in there. love that. Yeah. That's what people are here for. I actually think this is a great denial. We often kind of come back to this idea that the fall, the sense of sin being pervasive in our world is a real quantity. It really yeah. impacts us. And sometimes it's on the scale of everything from annoying to really tragic and dramatic. And somewhere in between those two things is like the thing of the common cold or the sinus infection. These are, it's amazing, right? How much of your personhood, so to speak, your attitude can be undone yeah. by something like seemingly as small as the common cold. And I think that's a great reminder that everything is aching. Everything is groaning. Sometimes we ourselves are aching yeah. and we want that restoration. Man, it sounds like we're, I'm trying to get us to go into the topic, but I promise <laughs> I'm not. I'm, we're going to pull up on this. Yes. But I, I really like this. I sometimes think about this in with respect to small children. Because imagine if you can, if we could even conceive of this, that we were small and didn't understand the world. It's tough being little. And yeah. when you're sick, it's really tough. And I think about little kids like little August, who's experiencing some of these things for the first time. Like imagine vomiting for the first time yeah. and not knowing what is happening yeah. to you. Like that itself is is sin. It's it coming into our lives this way is so disruptive and destructive and we just don't know what is going on. So yeah. it's tough to be little. It's tough to be sick and little. Yeah. There's a certain measure of grace in the fact that, that we don't remember this, that, that phase of life where everything was new and potentially scary. And, you know, like I suppose as a new parent, some of this is really scary. Like we, we almost made an ED visit the first night because we couldn't tell if he was able to breathe or not. So it, it's a little scary sometimes, but yeah, right now it's, it's really interesting how a little tiny thing like a virus, I think we reflected about this a little bit with when COVID first hit 
um, which is obviously, at least at the time, was a, a much more significant illness than the the garden variety rhinovirus or something like that. But, you know, like the average adult healthy uh, human with a, a non-compromised immune system gets the common cold, which is caused by a coronavirus usually. Um, and they actually clear the virus and like clear the infection almost immediately. Like your body just knows what to do with it. Right. But like your body still is all messed up for a long time just because of the response to that virus. So it's it's one of those things where it's almost like our own bodies are what cause the problem, not necessarily the virus. Um, you know, most of your symptoms, that's why they, they tell you to treat the symptoms. You can't cure the virus to treat the symptoms. Most of the symptoms that you have are actually your body trying to deal with the virus. So it's just like even your own body is screwed up and attacks you. So yeah, it is what it is. So I'm just denying illness, sickness. But like right now, like just like the annoying inconvenient sicknesses, there's all sorts right. of really bad stuff out there too. Yeah, for sure. And at the root, we find sin being present in both those things. So we just start off like in a super upbeat mode, but I guess that's what happens when we start with the denial. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Well, what about you? What are you denying? So I'm going to just continue on and maybe like ramp up, elevate, maybe trigger and definitely do the old man on the lawn with my fist in the air shaking. Nice. And I'm denying against something that I think sometimes comes attendant with this time of year. So we're recording this right on the cusp of the Christmas season. And so I'm denying against casual singing in this Christmas season. And here's why. Because I think about this a lot and I think I'm actually just talking to myself here. Maybe everybody else is totally fine with this, but I'm often convicted this time of year that there's a tendency to sing certain songs that are in the catalog of our culture because they're like Christmassy or they bring some sense of like the spirits of Christmas and we sing them and we enjoy them and they fill us with some kind of sense of hominess or comfort. And some of those songs are fine because they're of a nature that they're kind of not specific and they're just about, I don't know, snow and cold yeah. and trees, stuff like that. That's fine. But there's also a whole part of this catalog that is written about the incarnation. And when we confuse those two, I just think we need like a giant crowbar between them. Yeah. Because I often get convicted that there are people who are not believers that put into their mouths and then expel out in their singing these words about Christ taking the Lord's name on their lips. And they do so in vain. And we can also do that in vain too with blasphemy. If we sing those songs merely because it's what you do, because it makes you feel good and because that's what brings like the yuletide spirit when we have the holy spirit within us that ought to be pushing us toward a more robust sense of worship and appreciation and cogency as we sing that stuff so i'm kind of uh denying against this idea that we should be casual in yeah. that like all some of these songs some of these hymns that, that we call christmas songs are great acts of worship. They're theologically rich and they're really, really deep. And we should appreciate them as such and come to them with like a different attitude and different cognizance than we yeah. do, say, Jingle Bells. It's okay, it's, of course, to sing all these things. But I just want to make sure that like my heart is centered in the worship of the Creator and His gift of Jesus Christ, aside from or disconnected from this idea of like season of joy just for the sake of feeling better or you know having, again, some kind of cultural like, you know, unanimity with like this idea of like, we should all just be happy. Yeah. So that's, that's really what I'm denying against. How, how do you feel about that? I mean, this kind of, it's kind of an old man thing, but yeah, um, I think I'm I with know. you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I might be even a little bit more old man on the grass, shaking my fist about the sort of happy, slappy, fun Christmas songs. I, I don't really like those songs. Um, I think they actually kind of cheapen the season. Like, you know, go back and listen to our Christian Liberty episode. Obviously, like I'm not telling other people they can't listen to it or enjoy them. But for me, I think there's enough of a degradation of what you might think of as like the true meaning of Christmas. Like there's enough of a degradation of that um, in our culture where Christmas is now mostly about family and it's about generosity and it's about sentiment. Um, and so these kind of like Hallmark Channel Christmas songs um, they just play into that and they just reinforce that. So I'm actually not even a huge fan of, of Christians being all that excited about general Christmas music, like Christmas family style music. Um, again, no law here. If you enjoy that more power to you, it's just not my thing. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I was thinking the other day, I was watching a, a YouTube video. Uh, it was a vocal coach reacts kind of one of those videos where, where, 
a, a professional vocal coach was listening to a song by Pentatonix, which is like a, a relatively famous uh, acapella group. And I love, I love, this is a little, little insider baseball here about me. I love acapella music. I really, really enjoy it. And so I was watching this video um, and it was, um, it, they were, the song they were doing was Hallelujah, right? Which isn't even really a Christian song. It's just Christian themes kind of overlaid on top of other things. But it, it got me thinking about some of the other Christmas style songs and Christmas, like legitimate Christmas hymns that they've, they've done covers of. And the members of Pentatonix, uh, by and large, are enemies of the gospel. Like they're they're people who would reject Christian like, morality. They're people who would absolutely um, think us to be judgmental, ridiculous, bigoted, evil people. Um, yet they can take the name of Christ on their lips and sell it and make a profit off of it. And I think we, as the church, as Christians, have to be very careful. I really feel like you're trying to goad me into jumping into our topic today uh, in <laughs> advance here. Happening. Um, <laughs> we have to be very careful, I think, not to endorse blasphemy, and and right. I mean that in the sense of li- literally taking the Lord's name in vain, um, because it, it's so easy, it's so easy to do, and I think we see it more clearly. When it's somebody, you know, using Christ's name as a as a curse word in a movie, and we maybe we get offended at that, maybe we don't, but but we recognize that as blasphemy. Um, but when all of a sudden someone who's an enemy of God and and a blatant enemy of God sings a really pretty Christmas hymn, uh, we we get moved by that, and we think it's so great, and we we put it on our repeat list, and and every time that song plays on Apple Music. That person gets a, you know, gets a royalty. So we just have to, I think, I think I'm with you. We just have to be really careful and even more so when we're singing it. Exactly. I think about like Christmas productions at like, at like even at Christian schools where these Christmas songs are sometimes used almost in a commercial fashion, um, not in a reverent, holy, worshipful way. Well, that's part of the very nature of what it means to violate the third commandment is to use Christ, you know, God's name, his attributes, his works, his titles, um, right. anything that he reveals himself by to use those in unreverent ways is the definition of blasphemy, you know, as, as we understand it. So I, you're, I, I'm right with you. We just have to be careful with our own attitudes and our own perspectives on that when we sing those songs and when we utilize right. it's them. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Because yeah. these songs, at least in the Western canon, have been brought and impounded into the culture for this time of year. So people are prone to sing right. them. And I think if we can again sing them kind of flippantly or casually, but one of my favorite uh, quote unquote Christmas songs, really song, of course, just about the incarnation is Oh Holy Night. And so what's so strange to me is these lyrics are so profoundly direct. And so there is that that lyric in the first verse, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And then there's this crescendo about the music and the purpose of the of the song and the lyrics, and it comes to the chorus where it says, "Fall on your knees," and to me that is like such a great expression right. of worship in that moment. And yet, how many people we hear that, or people are just singing that? I think, yeah. my word, like, do you want to hear what you're singing? And two, you may exactly be promulgating the thing, at least by how you're speaking, that you're very much against. It's just such a weird irony this time of year. It's it's one of the few times where you will hear people singing, for lack of a better way of saying it overtly Christian music while they themselves may be staunch enemies right. of the gospel yeah. or maybe at best agnostic and at worst atheist. Right. It's just so incredible. So I'm kind of on this kick now of appreciating those things as I sing them. I can't control who's making that music, yeah. but I want to make sure that I'm worshiping uh, like when I hear it. So the last thing I'll say, I want to piggyback what you said about watching a video. So I'm not condoning this per se. Uh, I'm giving everybody a warning, but it is funny to watch. So if you want some example of this kind of vibe, there is, and by the way, Tony, I thought you were going to go in the opposite order. So like now I'm about to say something that's going to lead into my <laughs> afternoon. So now we're going to go the other way, but that's either here nor there. So uh, if you want to watch something entertaining, and again, I can't condone this because they're going to, there's going to be language. There is cussing in this video. So I'm just giving everybody a warning to that. But if you want to see an example of this, uh, the, here's another reaction video. It's by two young gentlemen. They have a channel called Comfortably heavy. So comfortably heavy. If you go to YouTube and you search for this, they do a reaction video to a song called Lowborn, 
which is a song about the incarnation by this band Wolves at the Gate. They just love good, heavy music, hence the title of their channel. And what they do is they sit down and they watch these videos and they react. Now, this song is so theologically rich and deep in its language, and it's so beautiful, really, in its musicality in all kinds of ways that they're overwhelmed by this. But here's the thing that made me laugh. Now, again, there is cussing in this. And so they get to like partway through the first verse and one of the guys goes, oh man, I think this is about Jesus. <laughs> and uh, they get to the chorus and the other guy's like, this is 100% about Jesus. And I thought, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That, that is like good Christian music where it is plain and center out in front of you that here are these guys who are not believers. They just like heavy music and they're, they're watching and processing this. And it is clear to them, even though the name of Jesus is actually not spoken in this song at all. There is a manual reference, but they know that it's, it's just clear to them. And I thought that is what our Christmas music should be like. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think you're right. And a lot of times our, our quote unquote Christmas music, I'm doing air quotes for anyone who, who didn't hear me say quote unquote, um, our Christmas music is often absent, absent Christ. And, and I just think that that's a shame. And then now, now we often take the Christmas music that isn't absent Christ. And we, we basically, commercialize it and make him a prop for whatever we're trying to accomplish with our sort of like feeling and like reason for the season, um, hallmarkisms. Yeah. Right. I'm with, with you. Again, last thing I'll say, just so we can like perhaps prevent all of the angry email from coming into info at reformbrotherhood.com would be to say, I'm not denying Bing Crosby and white Christmas. If you want to listen to that, that's fine. This is more about creating, again, that separation, that crowbar between how we appreciate and enjoy that kind of music yeah. and a lot of other music, which is written for this time of year to focus our minds on the incarnation as an act of worship and not merely as just part of like some general holiday revelry. So I think there's there's a lot there that's I, I want to express in liberty, but also a lot that I want to challenge all of us to not sing casually yeah. in this Christmas season. So uh, enough of that. Let's kind of, and we're going to ramp up. Let's go positive because everything we're talking about, I, you can see here, right? We want to go into this transformationalist conversation, but not yet. <laughs> not yet. Hold off. Okay. So tell me, what are you affirming with? So this is this is a kind of a perennial type of affirmation. I'm just affirming modern medicine and it not having to do with my cold. I, uh, I went into um, have a, a very minor procedure the other day. And it was a procedure that requires uh, some sedation medication. Um, and, you know, not to get into too many details, but it, it was an upper an upper endoscopy where they use a camera to look inside your throat and stomach. And I was just thinking about, like, first of all, it, what an age to live in where, like, we can just look inside your body to see if something's wrong. Like, we can just put a camera inside your body and look at it to see if there's, like, a an ulcer or whatever. But then on top of that, like what an age that we live in where like we can do that and it doesn't hurt. It's like, it doesn't hurt you. It doesn't like, right. Like they have medicine that can make you just not notice that it's happening. So I, I don't, I mean, I, I think it's a relatively self-explanatory affirmation. Like we are, we are given common grace blessings, man. It's, and we just cannot avoid going into this topic. <laughs> there are common grace blessings that the Lord has given uh, to humanity as a whole, right? That that um, sometimes are landed upon by non Christians, right? I, I don't. I guess I don't know, but I I doubt that it was a Christian who invented the uh, upper endoscope, right? Or I doubt that it was a Christian, although maybe it was. I don't know, but it, it was seems unlikely to me that it was a Christian who invented Versid or whatever kind of sedative medication they used to give me. Nevertheless. God has blessed all people with these things that a previous generation, like sometimes you just got sick and died because they couldn't figure out what was wrong. And it could be something simple that they could have treated if they could actually see inside your body, but they didn't have the ability to do that. So it's, it's a blessing to the world. And, and we'll, we'll talk about what, like I said, we'll end up talking about things like common grace and stuff um, when we get into the topic here, but yeah, what a time to be alive. Yeah, that's right on. It's almost this kind of, a, in some ways, like the opposite of your denial, which is which is really tight. So I love this idea because sometimes, I think I've said this in our conversations that we've recorded before, or maybe not. I know I said to you privately, sometimes I think about past errors, maybe you're reading yeah. a biography or you're studying at a particular point in history and you think, oh my gosh, it'd be so romantic to live in that time, be simpler. And then this thought comes to my head, anesthesia. So I'm just so thankful to be yeah. alive right now. I've also had one of those processes. And it's just, I don't know, it's just so great to not have to worry about 
suffering through, even if it's like a test, like in that case, I've had some tests done where, again, all they're trying to do is discern more information. But if you, one, if you weren't knocked out, probably they couldn't literally or legitimately right. do the test right? because it'd be so incredibly painful or you'd be fighting somebody or just be so horrible that it couldn't happen. And then two, you know, again, if to have a procedure done where a doctor can literally go in and, you know, inflict a wound and then it, through that wound, provide some dramatic healing r restoration or restructuring yeah. of the body, then come out, bind that wound up, and then you'd be repaired in some way. It's a remarkable piece of technology and yeah. a great gift from God. It really is. There's just no, no way around it. And of course, what else would we do if we didn't have on YouTube all these videos of people coming out of anesthesia? <laughs> because that, that's funny in its own right. The last time I was under the general anesthesia, I was fairly nervous about it because it had been quite some time since I had it done. And the anesthesiologist called me, of course, the day before and was explaining the process and was trying to, to get me, I think, to feel more comfortable about what was happening, including the fact that this is the kind of anesthesia which is like you go under very quickly and it's kind of at this like very low level and you come out of it very fast. So for some reason, he, in trying to identify that anesthesia, that process, he said to me, are you familiar with Michael Jackson? And I was like, like yeah. his music catalog? <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 no. Like, you know how he died, the anesthesia he used? And I was like, yeah. He's like, that's what we're using. And I was like, that's, that that's doesn't not help comforting. me at all. He was trying to, trying to emphasize, no, 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 this is like very slight and very yeah. common. Oh, propofol. So, yeah, it was. So I will say that the best part of that is I, sometimes I think people have these stories where you come into anesthesia and all of a sudden you realize you're awake and you're, you're observing the world again and you're looking around and maybe you're in a different place than where you went to sleep. And so you remember that. The last time, here's what I remember. I remember being in a different place, but this is the strangest thing to me. I remember becoming cognizant, but the moment that I'm becoming cognizant, I realize I am halfway through a sentence explaining the debt ceiling to the nurse who's <laughs> at the bedside. <laughs> So that I, seems I, like I, something you would do. Yeah. I don't even know why it happened. Uh, Jen was, uh, my wife was saying to me that uh, they were asking me about it. I don't remember. So that I gave a whole speech apparently before I was even cognizant that I was, I was doing it. So how did, how did you come out of it? Did you feel? Like, uh, well, did, mine was a much lower level of sedation. Um, so I used to schedule these same procedures, so I know a fair amount of it. And and so I was using the, what, what they call moderate sedation. And so I remember being conscious a little bit during the procedure, which is expected. Um, I remember waking up enough to realize that the scope was still in my throat and like feeling my body swallow against it, which was uncomfortable. It did not painful. And then the minute that that scope was out, like I was out again. And then the next thing I remember, a nurse was like shaking my foot at the bottom of the bed and saying like, hey, do you want to go home? That was like the only thing, the next thing I remember. So it was, I mean, it was a, it was a delightful experience to be honest with you. I don't remember. It's funny because the guy was, the sedation nurse was a guy and he said to me, he goes, okay, I'm going to push the first bit of your dosage. So you might feel a little bit funny. And I remember sitting there waiting, trying to, trying to assess all right, what feels funny? Like, what's right. the funny feeling? Like, is it going to feel like I had too much to drink? Is it going to feel like, uh, like I spun around in circles? What's it going to feel like? And and then I and then I woke up. <laughs> like, I don't remember any abnormal <laughs> feeling whatsoever. I just I must have just fallen asleep and went out. So, yeah, I mean, it was a it was a successful procedure, and that the team there. I mean, I I know most of the people who, who work in that area because I used to work in that section and, and they just do a great job. So yeah, if you're ever in the market for a colonoscopy or an endoscopy and you're in the upper New England area, I can recommend a good center. <laughs> I feel weird what saying that, but alive. what was that? What a time to be alive. Yes, exactly. What are you uh, What are you affirming today? Praise God. I can keep it really short because I'm on the heels of my denial, but in the opposite direction. So I'm contractually obligated, again, this time of year as we're speaking about Christmas music, to recommend or affirm with what I think is perhaps the best song in contemporary music about the incarnation, and that is Lowborn by Wolves at the Gate. So do yourself a favor. Do us all a favor. Go to YouTube and find the lyric video. Just type in Lowborn, Wolves of the Gate. You're going to want to watch these lyrics come across the screen as you hear this beautiful music. And the reason why I like this song 
is because this is just a song of great power. You know, there's to me, there's a great irony. There's this lovely, of course, juxtaposition in the incarnation in that there is no like human trumpeted fanfare when the Savior arrives. But spiritually speaking, you know, whether it's Mary or Simeon, everybody is rejoicing that here is one that comes in power to do the things yeah. that like David and Samuel and Samson couldn't do, that he's coming to take the head off sin, death, and the devil. And so to me, I want some music this time of year that reminds me that there is power in this. And so in just the first verse of the song, just in that verse, there's a little pre-chorus and the, the lyrics are, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will raise to life. And to me, that is like the encapsulation of everything that we're coming to this time of year. It's yeah. that finally the head crusher has arrived. He arrives in this amazingly insulting condescension to become a child. But in becoming that child, of course, as we talked about before many times, repairs, restores everything that it means to be human by taking that on himself. And then he crushes the serpent. And so I need that kind of music this time of year. So I'm affirming with Lowborn by Wolves of the Gate. Again, if you're looking for some good Christmas, if you're looking for something that gets you pumped up this time of year, this is that song. So go check it out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to check out the uh, reaction video. Uh, which I just did a quick look. That's actually the most watched viewed video, most watched viewed, most viewed video on their channel, which is uh, relatively uh, meager, but it's, it looks like that's got a lot more interest than some other other stuff has. So, well, it's a, it is a great song. And again, there's some interestingness there because they are not Christian. So there, at some points you'll hear them comment. Uh, well, I won't spoil it. Just go listen to it. Yeah. yeah I think you'll find uh, kind of something interesting happening there as they speak about the band and how they write lyrics and the respect that they have for them. So it's, it's pretty interesting, but I think it's finally time because we've been, we've basically been goading ourselves into this topic of transformationalism and what it means. And like I said, I want to go back just to what I said at the top. And that is, we're really getting after this question of what is the mission of the church and yes. its office in relation to the world. And I think we have a couple episodes coming up that are going to really address that question. This is the first of the couple and it is an important question because I think some might think on the face, wasn't this just an easy answer? It's actually not, or maybe we've complicated it. And there is, I think on this particular point, some intramural debates among Reformed Christians in particular about what the mission of the church is. And of course, we're talking about this, not just in rich, large terms, but in general, when we go to the Lord's house on the Lord's day, what is being accomplished there? What are we after and what does this have to do with the church being in a culture? And how does it behave in relation to that culture? Yeah. What should it expect from it? And what should it try to do to it? All these things are kind of encapsulated in this question of what is the mission of the church and its office in relation to the world? So here's what I'm going to do. I'll kick it over to you, Tony. Why don't we start with some definitions on transformationalism? Because it's possible that many are not familiar with that term, or maybe they've just heard it casually. Yeah. And they're asking for the love. What are you guys talking about? Well, I think transformationalism is the, so let me let me start out this way. There are a number of positions or theologies that people coming out of general evangelical circles are surprised are, are like a thing. And not not like surprised in that they've never encountered it, but surprised that there are even other options. So the right. most common one that people run into is dispensationalism versus covenant theology. Most people coming out of a general evangelical theology in the United States of America are dispensationalists by default. And they, they don't even realize in a lot of cases that there are other options out there. Transformationalism is actually one of those things where most of the time, this is just the default evangelical view. So transformationalism, as the name would, uh, would suggest, is this idea that part of the mission of the church is to sort of infiltrate the culture and from the bottom up, usually the bottom up, but from the bottom up, transform it in a way where it more closely reflects kingdom values. And one of the things that they talk about, one of the things that we'll get into that I actually think is a major contradiction with Reformed theology is there's this distinction between the kingdom of God and the church. And so right. the kingdom of God is broader than the church in transformationalist positioning. It, it's it's everything that God uh, that God rules over, and so the church bringing bringing the kingdom values out into the world 
is sort of claiming territory that the Lord has already redeemed. Now it's claiming it and sort of bringing it back into alignment with that reality. And so this is just the default position that most Christians, evangelical Christians, operate under, right? And, And so I think it's one of those things where like you don't recognize, like the fish doesn't recognize what water is because that's just the context that it's always lived in. It doesn't know that it's in water because that's just the environment it's in. So I think we have to sort of parse out not only what transformationalism is, but why it is that this is even something that there's a debate about, I think is a, is a big part for us to kind of cover. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think it's helpful what we like to do on our conversations is sometimes present something for your evaluation. You're all reasonable people. We want us all the process together with the scripture teaches and how we apply that on a Monday morning. And this is, I think, one of those things. In some ways, it might be, I like what you said, bringing to light something that might feel as normative or just presumed in the way that we do church. And so like this idea of there being a particularly transformationalist approach. And can I just say at the outset, I said this before we started recording. I just dislike L-I-S-T words so yeah. much these days. Like, uh, and this, of course, if you hear us say this, you're going to say like, well, what's wrong with transformation? Like, aren't we talking about the gospel, the good news? Is it God transform us through Christ? So there's more here than just this, this uh, title. So the idea is that I think what we're seeing or what, what the transformation approach kind of like takes under is that there is a redemption motif in scripture. You know, of course, this idea that God is desires to redeem all of his creation and that the church is already involved in the process through cultural redemption. So that is a kind of a transformationist argumentation in that what we see here is a continuation of the creation mandate that was interrupted by the fall. Right. Then when we get to the other side of the cross, this idea of like the great commission, that's the idea of this transformationist view. Like all we're doing is saying all of life should be worship. And I wouldn't disagree with that. This idea that all of life is worship, of course. But there is a denial, in a sense, of like the sacred and secular distinction. So they're, they're recognized that there's an antithesis between like the values of Christianity and the values of like a worldly system or the world system. But there's a tendency to nevertheless emphasize common grace, which you already teased before, which gives all of culture then this neutral or even positive framework for engagement. And I think that to me is like, distinguishing feature of this particular approach. So this is accomplished through this distinction between like worldview and culture. So worldview of believers and unbelievers are complete odds with one another. But, and this is, I think the critical thing, you let me know if you think this is accurate, but the cultural material they use to express their worldview is neutral in itself. Right. So this is where it gets a little bit hairy because when we talk about culture, we're not talking about, let's say like different propensities or palates for different type of foods or whether you call that that uh, grape squash looking thing an eggplant or an aubergine that's what we're talking about here it's this idea of that like culture in its mores and its expression of beliefs that are promulgated by people itself of course you can't have a culture without a people group representing that culture that the culture itself is neutral while at the same time people can have a particular worldview that might in fact be sinful. I think many transformations would argue it is sinful, of course, which is why it needs some kind of remediation or regeneration according to the power of God through Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. But to me, that's like the critical facet. That's where we start here is this idea that culture is essentially like a blank slate and is at, I would say, best neutral, even while at the same time we can disagree with the people in that culture and the worldviews that they espouse. Yeah. And one of the things that is important to note is transformationalism is a sort of a broad, if you think about um, categorization, right? Taxonomy. Transformationalism is like the big circle. And there are different kinds of transformationalist views within that circle that have some affinity and some really drastic differences. So for example, theonomy is a transformationalist kind of view. Most theonomists would like, I don't know, they would probably like draw and quarter me for saying that. But transformationalism, broadly speaking, says that the mission of the church, at least in part, is to transform the culture such that it sort of is a preparatory work for Christ's Christ's right. return, right? So post, post-millennial reconstructionism wants to use the power of the government to transform culture to make it fit for when Christ returns at the uh, at the end of the millennium. 
transformationalism um, in sort of, sort of broader spectrum doesn't have all those same defining features, but they still want to utilize kingdom values to transform the culture. And you're right. The cult, the culture, quote unquote culture is seen as sort of like the, 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 um, the soil it's, it's the field that's being tilled and the, the kingdom values are what, what's planted in that field. So there's a lot of emphasis in transformationalism about or on things like um, workplace ministry or marketplace right. ministry is kind of the, the key term there. Marketplace ministry is this idea that um, every person has a marketplace, not just like marketplace, like financial marketplace, but every person who's not working in a you know, a Christian vocation, a ministry vocation, they go into a marketplace and that marketplace is now a mission field. It's a mission field for explicit gospel conversion, right? To, to bring about Christian conversions, but it's also a mission field in a broader sense in that now um, you want to go into that marketplace and may, let's say you're the owner of a small business. Well, you're going to, you're going to run that small business in a way that exemplifies Christian values, Christian virtues, and so now you're transforming the culture and maybe your business ethics and your business acumen as you interact with the, the next door down, sort of your honesty and your integrity is almost contagious and they kind of it kind of catches right. on and it transforms the whole societies in this sort of way. Another emphasis is on this idea of ministering to the city. And so there is and this this comes in varying degrees. But there's this idea that ministers who live in a particular city or a particular region, they're not just ministers um, to their local congregation, but they sort of have spiritual oversight and spiritual responsibilities to the whole culture or city. Usually this takes the shape of cities if you think of like Tim Keller's ministry. Tim Keller right. and those following kind of this Keller model – would view himself almost as like almost like a like the bishop of New York. If if our, if Protestantism had bishops, he's not only responsible for those under his care in his church, but he transformation was also say. And I don't know that Tim Keller has said this explicitly, so I don't want to necessarily put this in his mouth. But I I wouldn't be surprised. Transformationalism would say that Tim Keller also has spiritual oversight and responsibility for everyone who lives within a certain geographic region. Um, how they define those geographic regions, I don't, I don't know that there's like a formula, but, but Tim Keller lives in New York City, so he has some sort of spiritual responsibility for all of the people in New York City. And this also takes the effect of um, trying to sort of get involved with um, sometimes it's celebrities, sometimes it's government, sometimes it's academic institutions. There's a very strong desire to want to have a seat at the table. That's a, that's phrasing that they use a lot. They want to have a seat at the table. And this sometimes leads to um, what, what might be looked at in a lot of cases as compromise um, in terms of um, not preaching um, strongly against cultural hot topics. So right. whether that's abortion or same-sex marriage or other um, sort of social considerations, um, it, sort of not spending your social capital or or damaging your social credibility by preaching on those difficult topics and sort of leaving that as part of the transformation, right? If we get Christian morals into the system, then things like abortion will just resolve themselves. We don't have right. to preach directly against abortion. We just have to preach about how important life is. Well, those are those are things that are very common in transformationalism. And it's funny because transformationalism would bring together such disparate groups and voices. This is another element of this is a very ecumenical perspective in not a good way, like a negative way. You'd have someone like Tim Keller, who's a peace ordained PCA minister that although people will quibble on this for the most part is, is on the conservative end of the spectrum, right? He's not, he's not Greg Johnson at Memorial PCA, right? He's, he's right. Tim Keller. He's probably more liberal than most of us are comfortable with, but he's not a liberal. He's a, he's a conservative who maybe compromises on his ability to speak to some of those things. And then you would have someone like Carl Lentz at Hillsong in New York, and they both have basically the same vision, where Tim Keller is more involved in getting in, into things like academic circles. He He's working hard to be able to have a voice in major publications, major secular publications, to have influence with the government. Carl Lentz was working to get involved with celebrities like Justin Bieber and, and you know Kanye West and those kinds of people. But the actual movement and the structure and the goals are very much the same. If you win the culture, 
then the culture becomes Christianized and therefore now is a more fruitful place for the gospel to go forth. I, I have some real problems with that that I'm sure we'll get to, but I think people can see, especially if you came out of a general evangelical culture, this is very much uh, the way that most of it is presented, right? You 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 go to work and you work hard so you can become the boss, and then when you're the boss, you can run according you can run the business according to Christian principles, and uh, and that's going to be a benefit for everybody. And then and then now the gospel has a, an avenue to go forward. Right. I, I think that sometimes is pretty short sighted. Um, it seems like they're playing the long game, but it actually is kind of a short sighted. Um, I think a myopic view on the reality of how pervasive sin is. And, and we'll get into those things as we, we go forward. Right. I think what we're after here is that this might be a little bit more problematic than one might think by looking on the face, because what I don't want people to hear us say is like, we're against transformation that God is, doesn't use people, of course, in whatever sphere of influence that he gives them to as ordinary means and agents of truth and reconciliation. He does that, of course. And if we're not, again, pushing against the Great Commission and the purpose of the church to go out and to make disciples. But that itself is more narrow than I think we often give it credit for. So I think the question really after is, does the transformationalist view put an undue responsibility and burden on the church that it was never intended to bear? And that is kind of, again, a more nuanced idea as we kind of process that together. Because it's clear that Christ has supplied us those who live in this world, his children, whom he's rescued and saved with his spirit to carry forward the work of spiritual recovery and redemption among men. And at the same time, Christ, of course, has left us the church with its work of word and sacrament to be another instrument in the hand of Christ for carrying forward and accomplishing his purpose of grace and truth on earth. But here's like to me where the transformationist view goes a little bit awry or maybe just a lot awry. And that is, it gets into this idea of substitute. So like, In the first place, the Christian church, in reference to the world in which it's found, is designed and fitted to be a witness for Christ, what we're saying. Again, you want to go into your workplace, you ought to be and should be and necessarily are a witness for Christ, but we are not a substitute for Christ. And so we think about the church and its activities, the work that it does, it is never and should not be a substitute for Christ. It should always be looking to Christ, pointing to Christ, expounding the word and preaching a proclamation around the divine truth of Christ and the ordinance of the sacraments. So the church is a public testimony for Christ, but again, not a substitute for it. So what I think what happens here is anytime we get into a place where this idea of trying to take the culture and turn it around or to infiltrate it to almost like send spies into the world, you know, promised land style, and then try to spin it around. I think we get a little bit confused that if we're not doing that, if your church isn't doing that, then it's not effective. It's not carrying forward the gospel in the right way. And that's where I disagree because, again, that is bordering on being a substitute either for Christ or substitute for the Holy Spirit. Instead, we are fitted to be a witness. And that witness is very different than the substitute. And the substitute brings, like an, again, I think an unfair and inappropriate and outsized burden that is not appropriate for the church to bear. By the way, I think if you, if I really want to trigger people even more, what I would say is this idea of the transformationist view is best espoused, get ready for it, in the Catholic worldview, actually. Yeah. Because that that is where you find the church essentially being, you know, we talk kind of casually about like the church is the hand and feet of Christ. I, I get what we're saying when we, we kind of emphasize that. But for the for Catholicism, like for the Roman view, that is exactly what it is. Right. It's this idea that like it is taking an outsized role because without it, that whole world falls apart. So it's like, I don't know, how do you magnify hashtag that, that post mill? That's what we're talking about here. Uh, like basically Catholic ecclesiology reckons the church to be a permanent incarnation of Christ and therefore, it's not just a substitute. It is Christ. Yeah. And again, I, I think any Protestant would be like, whoa, Yeah. let's slow down a little bit. Yeah. I, I think, you know, one of the hallmarks, and this is why I think so many, so many people don't even realize that this is a distinct view. They just think that they just think this is, this is just what biblical Christianity is. So many people would not have a problem with the idea of saying, um, you know, we've just got to be Jesus to the world. Right. Right. We've just got to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world. Um, and to a certain extent, there is a certain way with biblical reasoning that we can say we are the we are the ongoing presence of Jesus Christ in the world. Like we're his people and we're his emissaries. But transformationalism and, and you're I think you're you're spot on with the comparison to the Roman Catholic Church. 
transformationalism is a position which which sees the church's ministry uh, in this twofold sense, right? There's the there's the ministry of word and sacrament, and then there's the ministry of I don't know the the Adamic ministry, the cultural mandate, whatever you know. There's different terms, but this sort of it's not even it's this is what's weird about it. It's not even a Christianizing of culture because right. it's you know where theonomy is trying to say or post mill post mill reconstruct excuse me reconstructionism, which is closely associated with theonomy as we talked about last week, or I should say theonomy is closely associated with that, is explicitly trying to make a Christian culture. Right. It's explicitly trying to take the culture and fuse it with the church in a certain sense. Transformationalism still wants to sort of hold this distinction between the church proper and then like the culture and the kingdom of God. And to me, those two views are just backwards. Both of them are backwards. But I think a lot of people listening to the show would be surprised that there are people who object to the idea that we we might we could be Jesus to the poor. We could be Jesus right. to the, you know, we right. could be Jesus to the lost. The simple fact is like we're not Jesus. We're not going to be Jesus and we can't be Jesus. And Jesus's primary ministry to the world was the salvation and redemption of the elect. So while while there were cultural transformative elements that came about along with his ministry and as a result of the church's presence in the world, he he didn't um Jesus didn't come into the world to transform the world. He came in the world into the world to redeem the world, but also to judge the world. So right. I, I just think we have to be we have to go into this with our eyes open when we're talking about transformationalism, because there's a lot of really, really commendable things that I think are there. So we'll, we have this episode here on transformationalism. We're going to do an episode on, on two kingdoms theology next week. And then I'm thinking we'll probably spend a, spend a, an episode just kind of talking about like our own perspectives and our own views on this, because I just, this is actually a view that Jesse and I have not spoken about directly to each other, even offline in any really extensive way. So I, I don't actually know exactly where Jesse stands on this. And I don't think Jesse knows exactly where I stand on this. And I think everybody would be a little bit surprised uh, where I stand on it. I think people went, when they find out the position I actually hold, they're shocked at it. Um, and some of that is because transformationalism is sort of the default. There are some really big names in the reformed world that um that hold to or i should say hold to a predecessor of transformationalism right transformationalism right. tim keller style transformationalism is kind of the spiritual descendant of bovink and kuiper and neo calvinism um there are some distinctions um but neo calvinism is a transformationalist perspective right abraham kuiper he became the prime minister with the expressed intention of spreading Christian morals into the Netherlands. That was his goal with, with you know, joining the government. So we have to be careful because it's not the case that this is not a view that lives within the reformed world. I think, I personally think that this is a view that on a strict reading of it is not consistent with the reformed confessions. Right. Um, and I just want to, here's why. So this is Westminster Confession chapter 25. And it's, uh, I'm reading section two. It says the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there's ordinary, no ordinary possibility of salvation. So the, the reformed tradition, the reformed confessional tradition, as I read it and as I understand it, does not see the kingdom of God with that language does not see that extending beyond the boundaries of the visible and invisible church. Right. So the transformationalist perspective would say there's the church, right? There's the church and it's sort of this pocket of believers. And then there's the kingdom of God, right? This is kind of the, the Kyperian notion that there there's not one single, um, iota of the world that Christ doesn't look at and say mine. Well, of course we affirm that Christ, Christ owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? The Bible says that right. Jesus Christ is the Lord over everything. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's redeemed all. He's the King over all yet. Not all is subject to him yet. 
right? That's right out of Hebrews. Not all is under subjection to him yet. And so the transformationalist view has a lot to commend it. They have a passion and a desire to go out and to actually make a difference. I think sometimes, especially reformed, especially the two kingdom view, I don't want to get too far into that, but the two kingdom view can very much be sort of this holy huddle where we just let what's going on in the world happen. That's not necessarily right. intrinsic to the view, but that can be the outcome sometimes. We just let the world do its thing and we do our thing and and we, we don't get too involved. And even when we do get involved, we're not doing it as Christians. We're just doing it in the world. I don't necessarily think that's the right way to go. We'll talk about that next week. But transformationalism sometimes pushes that the other direction. We talked about this and we sort of got at the idea with the, the what we were calling the regulative principle of abundant life. Not everything we do can be labeled Christian, right? Right. Um, not everything we do can be done in a distinctly Christian fashion. That doesn't mean that those things that cannot be done in a distinctly Christian fashion are not worthy of being done. It just means that they're not an operation or an extension of the mission of the church. And I think that's where transformationalism sometimes gets it wrong, is that they will transformationalism will view anything that a believer can licitly, lawfully do unto the glory of God as an extension of the mission of the church. Right. So when when a group of Christians get together and they go to a secular soup kitchen and they participate in the secular mission of that secular soup kitchen. Right. This is being recorded a couple of days after Thanksgiving. There were tons of soup kitchens that have no Christian foundation whatsoever. And there are lots of Christians that probably went and participated in those activities and probably viewed what they were doing as an extension of the ministry of the church. I don't think that it is an extension of the ministry of the church. It was participating in, if you want to call it that, the ministry of this non-Christian organization. The, right. the ministry of mercy that this non-Christian organization was doing is a good thing. And participating in that is a fine thing, but it's not necessarily an extension of the church. And I would even venture so far to say that a Christian church putting on a soup kitchen is not necessarily even then an extension of the ministry of the church. It's a fine thing to do but it's not necessarily a ministry of the church, in my view. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But I just think this is a view that we have to interrogate a little more closely because so many of us grew up and just breathed this air in. Sorry, I thought there was more coming. <laughs> Sorry, I thought there was more coming too, and I just stopped. <laughs> so I'm with you. Here's the thing, and I want to try to clarify just a little bit or parse out some of the details. What we're after in asking this question is not, are these things permissible? So your idea of saying, Create a church, send volunteers to go participate in a soup kitchen. Absolutely. Would that be the kind of thing that people might be strongly committed to as an act of love toward our Savior and a witness to him? Of course, and absolutely. And I think right. the Bible would support all of that stuff. The real question is, is it required that the church do that? In other right. words, is it required that the church in its fundamental nature continue to push out and to do those things such that if it didn't do those things, we'd be saying the Bible would condemn it right. as not bringing about the Great Commission. That is more like the essential element of the argument that we're, we're trying to evaluate here. And I'm with you. I don't think the scripture promulgates that idea. And so I think the problem here, again, for me, goes back to what we consider to be normative and neutral. So there's no doubt that we can distinguish between like elements and their forms when it comes to this idea of trying to take on the culture. Maybe the question is better asked, did God ever intend that the church would actually, uh, through, its, through its efforts, even those efforts empowered by the Holy Spirit, transform, take over, or redeem the entire culture? Yeah. Was that his expectation and his requirement when Jesus, our Savior, left the, this earth and instituted his church? So I think like we can be correct and the transformationists get this correct that there are basic elements of human civilization that are good. Anesthesia is super good. That, yeah. That's that's great. But the forms they take may be intrinsically evil. So I really struggle with this idea that we can have a worldview, a group of people that are against all things in the scriptures. And yet that group, when put together, can somehow bring about this general zeitgeist that is somehow neutral. I just find that very difficult yeah. to process and to understand. I don't think that's the way, in fact, the Bible speaks about culture. And so I, I think you're right, of course, that the way in which we understand the scriptures is not giving us this idea that we ought to go out and infiltrate and transform everything because if somehow we get everybody to listen, if we could somehow legitimize or legalize or to legislate what is the Christian worldview and whatever that means to transform it in such a way that either one, the world would be better prepared for Christ or two, that everything would fall into place. It just seems like a fool's errand. 
And beyond that, again, I would say that is not what God requires of us. That's not what he wants from his church. Even at the same time, while he calls individual Christians to be witnesses, to go out again into the places where they do business and where they live and where they play, to be light onto the world, to be salt and light, that is a legitimate requirement. But we have to separate that, again, from what is required of the church. So here's how I would kind of summarize it for me. Without getting ahead of all the episodes we're going to apparently record that I didn't know about until just now, we're going to actually give our <laughs> viewpoints. That's fantastic. So, you know, if the spirit in the church exists as this twofold agency, let's say it this way, twofold agency of Christ, left by our Lord to continue the work that he begun, then I would say it stands to reason that the church's relation to the world would be similar to Christ, provided we understand that we're never to replace Christ. We right. can't and we shouldn't. So the church is not a substitute for Christ or the spirit or for union, like immediate union with Christ. It's also not a substitute for that. Instead, I would say like our role as the church in relation to the world is to bear witness to the saving power of Christ, to exercise the appointed means whereby the spirit redeems and sanctifies, and to join in one body for this mutual fellowship and support that we have been joined with Christ. And I think surprisingly, those last features, this idea that the spirit through the proclamation of the gospel, is doing this mighty, miraculous work of changing and transforming people. And that when we come to the house, to God's house on the Lord's day, we're uniting as one body for mutual fellowship. Those things are so underemphasized as to be set aside and say, well, that's really not transformative enough. Yeah. But what the church needs to do is to go out and almost be Catholic in its influence, to be the hands and feet of Christ in a very explicit and physical sense And instead, I want to rejoice and say, my word, that God has given us the Holy Spirit. It's all happening here on the Lord's Day. That is the transformation he wants to see in that we can sometimes get caught up in in a red herring. I know that we're drawing near to the end, Tony, but I want to say one more thing and get your perspective on this. Because now that I know that I don't know where you stand on this, and you don't know where (laughs) I stand on this, and it's going to be a surprise. Um, Here's the only way I can try to explain this. So it's, it's going to be a little bit mathematical is... Let's say that you're trying to predict something, pick any variable that you want to predict that's unknown in the future. And so you study what happened in the past with that variable. You create a model. You you dip into history and you grab with your hand a bunch of samples and you create a model. The big fear in creating a model is that you overfit the model. Right. In other words, you create all these, these formulas around what happened in the past, but just so it turns out that what happened in the past is not actually going to be indicative of the future and you overfit the model. Right. To me... At the heart of transformationalism, besides this idea of keeping cultural neutral, as if like, to your example, like the soil doesn't fight against you. The soil just wants to grow Christian fruit, which I would disagree with. But it, you know, it wants to just grow. If you just plant it, you don't have to water it, you don't have to till it, you don't have to do anything. It's going to be great. It's ready to receive that, which I struggle with. Beyond that, I think that transformationalism is overfitted eschatology. Like it's this idea that what we have to do is like, you know, listen, Christ is, wants to bring about, a, a, he wants to return to this world. And we're not separating the fact that there's a difference between the world he returns to and the one that's after Christ, the eschaton. So instead, we're kind of like sucking in the eschaton because we feel like we have to bring about ourselves. Again, I, I think transmissions argue about the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to bring in the eschaton now. Yeah. And the way that we bring in the eschaton now is by taking over the culture. And when we do that, we're actually doing the Great Commission. I think, again, that's a misunderstanding of what's implied and directly asserted and challenged to us in the Great Commission. So I see like overfitting there. Like, yeah. Do you also see overfitting or am I overfitting? No, I think you're right on. I think one of the things we haven't talked about, and we won't, I won't spend much time on it because we're running out of time. Um, transformationalism, in my assessment, makes the apostolic ministry and especially the ministry of Christ a model um, for the church's ministry. And that may sound really controversial to say that we shouldn't, that the church isn't to model itself after that. But if you look at, um, if you look at the new Testament itself, right, you have the ministry of Jesus, right. And Jesus does his thing and his ministry is very different than, than the church's ministry. His ministry is very, very different than the instructions that Paul gave to Timothy and Titus, especially Ephesians as well. It's very different than that ministry. If you look at the book of Acts and you look at the apostolic ministry, that's very different than the ministry that was instructed to Timothy and Titus and, and to the Ephesians and, and by, uh, by precept in the, the epistles. And so I think this overfitting concept is right on, right? It takes this model that Jesus laid down in the New Testament. Jesus had a major impact on culture. 
right? He, he, he transformed the culture around him by just the sheer force of his personhood being present, changed things. Um, you know, there's this, I don't know how one figures this out, but there's this old fact that gets bantied around and repeated in sermons. And it, it kind of becomes fact as it's repeated that Christ effectively cured all of the illness in Israel. I've heard that so many different times. I don't know how we prove that. I don't know where it started, but this idea that Christ cured all of the sickness in Israel, he basically emptied out Israel for of illness. I don't know if that's true, but transformationalism kind of takes that forward and sort of thinks it's going to empty out the spiritual illness of the city, right? The right. city is such a big deal. And I think all of these transformationalist views, theonomy, transformationalism, neo-Calvinism to a certain perspective, the new apostolic reformation is actually a, a transformationalist view. Um, all of these take and they confuse the nature and purpose of the gospel and the nature and purpose of the law. And they act as though... The, the second use of the law, this is why we did this in this order, right? The second use of the law, the civic use of the law to restrain evil, that we might call it the governmental use of the law. They take that governmental use of the law and they make that as though that's the good news, or at least is a part of the good news, that we can shape and transform society in a way that it behaves more according to God's law, and they make that part of the gospel. That's a big problem. That's a big confusion of law and gospel. And at the same time... Mm -hmm. Now, that sometimes supplants the actual proclamation of the gospel. And this is where I think that they're the, the weakest element of transformationalism is, is you can get someone like a Tim Keller, who I've never met. I don't have any major objections to Tim Keller on a personal level, but you can take someone like a Tim Keller or someone who's in that real strong transformationalist model, and you can give him a seat at the table, right? He, he is involved in some of the most... Um, culturally significant institutions and culturally significant conversations in New York City. He's in, right in the middle of it. I have never seen an interview with him on a major news media outlet or in a newspaper where he actually presented the gospel. And he would say, well, that's because that's not the venue for it. And, and I have a real problem for that, a problem with that. When you have the opportunity to preach the gospel of salvation from sins to, to a wide audience, why wouldn't you? Well, the answer is, in most instances with transformationalism, the answer is, is that they don't want to sacrifice their seat at the table because that is a part of the purpose of the church is to have this seat at the social table to make changes and transformations in the culture. And the actual explicit preaching of the gospel is sometimes sacrificed in favor of being able to do that. And I think we as individual Christians all have this tendency. I think we've We've all probably had an experience where we had an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Maybe it's a coworker or maybe it's someone at like the Dunkin' Donuts. And we've, we've sort of said like, well, I don't want to blow my opportunity to, to like to speak into their life. So I'm just going to hold back on this for now. That's a transformationalist impulse. And I think it's a bad impulse. So I think that ultimately, if you were to sort of lay it all on the table, transformationalism, uh, theonomy included in a very specific way, but theonomy included transformationalism is a confusion between the law and the gospel. It, it's treating the law like it's gospel and treating the gospel at times like it's law. And it is this, um, this confusion of the role and nature of the church that t ties right along with it. So I, I'm excited to sort of talk about R2K or 2K theology um, because sometimes it seemed as though this is like the, the perfect answer to, to transformationalism. But I think it has a lot of the same issues actually. And we'll, we'll get into those next week. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk about where we, where we individually stand. I think that'll be a really interesting conversation too. R2K. I mean, only the reformed community can come up with something like that. Yeah. I, I often, this is on a side as we close, but uh, I help with the nonprofits and do some of their uh, treasure actually. So I do the tax filing and stuff like that. And I recently was speaking to the board and I said, let's play a game. And the game sort of reminded me of when you were like R2K. Nice. That sounds yes. like something that we might see in, in Andor. The R2D2 but, uh, totally view. With you, I think I hope that people will take this as maybe something that they can, again, take into their own mind, take into their own conversations, process this a little bit. Because what we're after really is to understand what it means to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the church to pursue her calling, we know that Christ loves the church desperately. And we ought to, in likewise measure, be after the very things that he would want for the church to do. 
And to, I think there's nothing wrong with saying, we don't want to just pursue opportunity. We want to pursue the calling, that essential elemental nature and disposition that God has given the church and all of the wonderful things that he's given it to pursue. And we know that he has given her this great authority and power by the Holy Spirit. So let's be after those things. Another thing that our listeners could be after if they want is supporting the podcast. And of yep. course, we're so grateful for those who come alongside in so many ways, sending emails, sending voicemails. And in addition to that, if you are thinking, you know what, I would love to make sure that this podcast remains free and unencumbered by commercials and weird advertisements, then you can do that by going to patreon.com backslash reformed brotherhood. And if you've satisfied all of the responsibilities that you have to your own church in your own giving, as the scriptures give to us in generosity by the, the standard that Christ himself models, then we would love for you to support us financially. That is, in fact, the very thing that keeps everything going and keeps the downloads coming smooth and makes sure that our voices don't sound super weird and that the stuff comes out on time. All those little details are covered by generous brothers and sisters who are part of the brotherhood. And for that, we are very, very, very grateful. Yeah. Yeah. And you can you can go to patreon.com slash reform brotherhood. Um, you can give a lot, you can give a little, um, you can give none. You're still gonna get the same content and the same uh same experience uh on That's the show. Right. Um, no no shade to shows that do it differently, but Jesse and I have have both have been of the opinion that um, what we provide, we want to provide to everybody. So check it out. Um, we've got a, a good community of people who are supporting the show, um, but there are always, I mean, it, this is the era of cost increases and that hasn't, uh, hasn't affected the podcasting, I don't know, GDP, I don't know, whatever the price index. <laughs> I was listening to a, po a podcast, I think it was the indicator <laughs> about the cost of Thanksgiving dinner and how that's used as a measurement of inflation. So there maybe there's like a podcasting measurement of inflation. So podcasting expenses have not increased drastically as a result of inflation, but they have increased a little bit. There's a lot of little things that have changed in prices over the year. Um, so if you if you have a little leftover after you've fulfilled your obligations to your church and to your family and you'd like to support the show, you can check that out. Another way you can support the show is join our Telegram chat. We're, we're closing in on 200 people, which gives us some new abilities in the chat to do things like topics and some threaded conversations that we sorely need. So if you are so inclined and would love to join, I think one of the coolest Christian communities online, one of the coolest chat groups there is, um, just win some fun. Um, we had a... A Clarkian, uh, not a Scott Clarkian, a Gordon Clarkian jump in the, the channel, um, which is usually not a pleasant experience because Clarkians can be a little bit uh, abrasive, but it, it's been fun just chatting with them and the community is handling it well and is is having good conversations. You can go to t.me slash Reform Brotherhood. Uh, if you don't have Telegram, it'll prompt you to download it. If you do, it should jump you right in the channel. Say hello. You will 100% get welcomed with a fun gift from multiple right people. On. Um, we would love to have you and you'll help us get close to that 200 mark that unlocks a bunch of new features for us. Right on. Would you say that people will be transformed by their inclusion in this group? They will. And we are, uh, we are seeking this, the good, the welfare of the city. Straight. You said all that straight face. People can't see that, but straight face. <laughs> like as if you were prepared for me to say that. Yeah. I'm never prepared for you to say anything on this show. There we it's go. It's all that's, a surprise every time. That's, that's what you expect yep. when you, when you download an episode, what you can know for sure is that Tony and I have done zero rehearsing of whatever we're talking about. It's true. This is real conversation without a net. So listen, come back next week because we're going to keep this conversation going. It's going to be equally good. It's going to be equally unknown. And maybe there'll be other theological perspectives that Tony and I have never discussed with each other and yet yeah. have been set up to be surprised. It's true. I mean, I'm going to come back next week because I think I'm going to be surprised. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. I really don't know. I really don't know. I, let me just put it this way. I would be surprised if we were drastically different just because I think you and I land in the same place on most things. But sure. I also wouldn't be surprised if there was a little bit more variation in our views than is Ooh. typical from our, uh, our different spots. So okay. until then, and until next time, honor everyone. Love that brotherhood. <laughs>